Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Bukaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, all the way from the University of Limerick, Podrick McCarran is on to help me cover Brand's final POV chapter of Book 1. If you're looking for my conversation with Steve, we will be covering Season 8 over at Double Dragon. You can search for Double Dragon wherever you search for podcasts. We'll cover all of Season 8 over on that feed. And then, of course, we will be covering House of the Dragon once it drops. I was shocked to learn, shocked, that Steve thought that the first episode of season eight was among the best. No, I won't qualify. He said it was the best first episode of a final season ever. So Steve is liking, so far, season eight. Come on over to Double Dragon to hear more of Steve's hot takes. Okay, without further ado, here is... Dr. Podrick McCarran. So did you happen to check the chapter preceding this chapter, or did you just dive right in and read this chapter? I read all of the brand chapters, <laughs> uh, all six, seven of them now, and I read, yeah, I did read, uh, I didn't read all of that Arya chapter, actually. I intended to, but uh, somehow I didn't finish it. But I did uh, listen to uh, your podcast on it, so that was Okay, all right. <laughs> well, I just, it's just such a different chapter mm. in context, right? Yeah. Uh, because everything has sort of gone to chaos in King's Landing. And now we're sort of serenely, you know, sitting in a turret watching boys play with wooden swords or whatever uh, up in Winterfell. And you really do get the sense that um, the, the rising action has peaked and the falling action is, is underway. And mm. uh, it's almost a sleepy chapter uh, until the very end. It's a strange one, isn't it? Like I, did, I read the last couple of pages of that area chapter because I knew what happened. And uh, I felt, again, despite the fact knowing exactly what happens, I felt my heart racing a bit. Like, you know, it's very tense. Yeah. Uh, and then you go to, uh, yeah, uh, Master Lewin's solar and Lickran's playing with a little telescope. And, yeah, you know, they're upset and stuff. But you're like, you, as a first-time reader, when you read that chapter, you tear, you literally tear through that chapter. It's just you want to get back to King's Landing, find yeah. out what's happening. Uh-huh. Um, so then it was interesting. This is my second time reading that chapter then, because I haven't read the books since I read it like a decade ago. Uh, and now I was reading it a lot more carefully because I was like, okay, well, actually, I want to see what's happening, and I know where it's going. I want to see what's mm-hmm. in this chapter. Whereas yeah. in the first time reading it, I didn't know what was happening. Um, so I really just wanted to kind of rush to keep the high going of the climax and find out what the next yeah. thing was. 
Yeah, the other thing, the other difference between these two chapters is I think it's interesting you mentioned the the telescope because I, I think that there's an issue of focus between the two chapters. Like Arya has been training her eyes to be laser beam focused on particular details, right? Mm. And so she's very, very narrowly focused on the details of Flea Bottom and the details of her father's execution. And then you jump to this brand chapter and like you get a, a, a recounting of you get a recounting of like the entire history of Westeros. So you couldn't have a, a, a wider scope. You know, you're talking about the children of the forest and the first men and the, when the Andals came. And, and here's a little, uh, you know, tour down the history of the Kings of Winter. And <laughs> it's just it's just like this. It, it, all of a sudden, the camera has backed up significantly. And you're seeing this whole world. And on top of that, I didn't notice before that they introduced the comet in this in this chapter. Is this the first mention of the comet? Because when uh, it's mentioned at the start, I was like, I think it had been mentioned in a Daenerys chapter, hadn't it? Before now? Oh, good question. I missed if it did. If it had been, I missed it. If it hadn't, it seems quite a strange place because it's so um, kind of off the cuff. It just mentions a comet, and it's it says it like it refers to it in a way that makes you think you've heard of it. Made me think I've I heard of it before. Have you ever gone to a search of ice and fire? I haven't. Okay, it's pretty awesome. Um, I'm looking. Uh, it's it's all sort of the, all the words are tagged and all of the, the ice and fire novels. And I'm I did just did a search for the word comet. Comet is only mentioned twice in this book. This is the first time. That's mad. And then it's mentioned again. I think the, the word comet is also in the very last chapter of the book, Danny, Danny yeah. 10. So yeah, no, the first time it's, it's like, it's like the scope of the story is looking way, way back to prehistory. And then it's also looking ahead to like a major theme in the next book. Um, you're also getting little hints about, you know, John's true parentage, I think. Mm. Um, anyway, I, it, it just, it, these two chapters set side by side are just really, really a stark contrast. Mm. No pun intended. <laughs> it's like they're from two different books almost. <laughs> it's true. Well, two different storylines for sure, but they're going to, um, you know, they're, they're absolutely going to collide, uh, at the end of this chapter. I'm going to go ahead and read my synopsis of this chapter, and then we can talk more about it. Very good. After discussing Winterfell's paucity of armed men, Bran tells Lewin of his dream. In it, Ned had met Bran in the crypts. Lewin attempts to dissuade him, but Bran wants to go to the crypts and stand by his father's grave. Lewin calls for Asha, and Bran calls for Summer. The four descend below the grounds of Winterfell, and Bran explains the history of Stark kings and lords to Asha. Once at Eddard's empty grave, 
Lewin is attacked by Shaggy Dog. Rickon, it seems, had the same dream as his brother and decided to climb down to the crypts too. Asha banishes Lewin's arm as the maester explains the history of the children of the forest, the first men, and the Andals. Asha is convinced that the children are still alive and beyond the wall. Then a raven arrives with the news of Ned's execution. Uh, so, Dr. McCarran, uh, would you like to talk about a plot point, a character, a theme, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos? I think I'm going to go with a theme slash a plot point. Okay. Again, and that is magic. Because at this point in the novel, we've had dead men walking, yeah. but we've had no other real instance of magic. Whereas in this chapter, green seers are basically introduced, but yeah. also Bran and Rickon share a dream. Yeah. And up to now, we've had Bran had sort of his trippy vision with the Triad Raven uh, after his uh, fall. But at that point, the reader doesn't know if this is just uh, the author exploring a sort of uh-huh. you know weird fever dream. Uh, and same with Ned has a fever dream. But at this point now, we see, okay, people are having shared dreams, and these dreams are accurate. So uh, I want to talk about magic, and then the comet being introduced, I guess, is also seemingly re- possibly related to magic. Yeah, and, uh, that's yeah. great. No, I, I had written that down too. I'm I'm thinking like you do have a a few little hints before uh, that Bran is having different a different kind of dream, and, or that he's you know having these wolf dreams or whatever. Um, you also have the this this business with. Danny going into the tent, right? Mm. And the tent has like, you know, no, you know, I'm going to, what does Miriam as said? I'm going to draw from powers old and dark or something like that. Yeah. So, but even so it's been, it's been pretty political, you know, it's, it's, it's been pretty mundane. And, uh, and so here we have, I think an introduction or, more, or maybe a, I don't know if an introduction is the right word, but we have a very clear indication toward green sight, although it's not named as such. So you're right. You're absolutely right. Martin is, among other things, introducing magic into the stories of Bran and Rickon. Not just introducing it, but he's verifying to the reader that, okay, all the crazy things we've seen up to now, maybe they were magic, whereas you could... I think almost up to this chapter, I think, and this chapter and the next Daenerys chapter, I think, oh, actually, there is no magic left, or there's no magic in this world. Um, so this, to me, is almost like the verification of that. Yeah, okay. But, but I, I suppose what's also interesting about that is we, we tend to judge Ice and Fire a lot by sort of modern standards and compare it to modern novels, whereas this book now is almost 30 years old. And if you compare it to stuff, fantasy novels you were reading in the early 90s, like so in the early 90s, I would have been introduced to the board game like Hero Quest, which is sort of standard fantasy magic. Uh, Lord yeah. of the Rings existed, stuff like I can see yeah. the sort of genre books in front of me by Terry Brooks. And magic in this is very much a sort of a bit more like, you know, your sword and sorcery or uh, it's a bit more in your face. Whereas this is a fantasy book 
in the early 90s which with almost no magic and then when it comes in it's not <laughs> lots of swords not a lot of sorcery yeah and it's not the magic that we're used to it's not someone like casting a fireball or you know uh-huh. wizards of pointy hats it's uh in this case shared dreams that are accurate and this idea of yeah green seer and so it's very different to what was there at the time so anything, anybody who read it at the time will not have, uh, it will probably come as a bit of a, a shock maybe or a bit of a surprise. It's like, where is this actually going? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that that's kind of what, more than anything, and I mean, you could point to Ned's beheading as sort of something that's unique about this kind of book, right? You'd never see sort of Aragorn get beheaded in, you know, the end of Fellowship or something. Um. <laughs> But in addition to that, it's just to save the introduction to dragons till the very end and to introduce green sight at just, you know, what page 736 or whatever. um, It's it's just a remarkable decision. And I think thrilling. I think it's, it's a, it's a, it just makes this book different. It makes it unique among its peers. Yeah, I think thrilling is the word. And I think I still remember the feeling of when I first finished this book, the dragon's hatch. I was like, I cannot wait to find out what happens next. <laughs> now, like, well, what actually does happen to these dragons? <laughs> right. For, sticking with the books, uh, not that much, uh, you know, 30 years later, <laughs> mm, yeah. which is uh, disappointing. Not that I, I didn't read, I read these books maybe in 2010, I think. So for the Now, I should, we should call out, though, that... In the prologue, we are introduced to a, another. Is that? Yeah, that's a different this race. Is not, a, 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 not a dead person walking, but it's it's another. This is a magical creature from beyond the edge of the world, you know. So, but a different race isn't it? Isn't magic, right? You know, you can have a world with different races. I mean, you could write a yeah. story about Earth and have Neanderthals and Homo sapiens on it, right? And they're sure. different species. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It's like, um, I mean, you could read the clues. You know, you could read things, you know, things are getting colder. The 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 sword of the White Walker is like as thin as a blade. And it's it just seems like, um, or not thin, it's like thin as a, it's like razor thin. It's it's mm-hmm. like, it, it, it doesn't seem like anything that you would normally encounter. Um, yeah. And I do think that, I, I so I do think there's, clearly magic in the prologue but i do think that martin does this little trick where he introduces it early on and you almost have forgotten all about all of that you've almost forgotten that there's even magic in the world because martin does such a great job of introducing skeptic after skeptic after skeptic about magical stuff so by the time you get to brand's dream you're like you're almost on Lewin's side until it's confirmed, right? Yeah, and I think that's probably Martin's intention because everybody in the world has forgotten about the others and the threat of them and, you know, even the long night. So mm. I think by him putting this at the very start, but then having such little payoff on the White Walkers for so long, yeah, I think sure. that's sort of, he's trying to lull you into the sense of what the, uh, characters are feeling like uh-huh. oh you you read this at the start and it sounds scary but then actually 
well, nothing happens for us. Just book about it. Okay, we get the um, the white. Yeah, and you hear uh, like maybe way more Royce referred to like one other time or maybe two other times over the course of the whole book. And so it's not like you even remember who those characters are in the prologue. Yeah. Um, So it's sort of out of sight, out of mind when it comes to that. But I think you're totally right. I feel like this chapter reminds you that you're in a fantasy narrative. And so so late in the game, and I think after the climax of the story. So it's almost like the magic is a footnote at the end of this of this book. Yeah, I think I think um, one of the guys in the podcast last time made a good point about um, having sort of multi climaxes, but the one in Westeros and one in Essos, and because uh, mm. I would I still remember the end with the dragon hatching as being to me that was a sort of the climax of the book because like I need to know what happens next and what ramifications this will have. Yeah, um, no, that was certainly Evan. Evan was uh, I think Evan's right about that, but I do think that. I almost feel like the the stuff with the dragons at the very end almost functions as a platform for the next narrative that he wants to tell. It's not central to the plot that has been constructed for this particular book. That's true. It's like an afterthought. I mean, it could even be like a you could even think of it like a as a appendix. Yeah, these plots are have no relationship to each other so far. You know that's going to have payoff later on, but I guess for a self-contained uh-huh. uh, Game of Thrones novel, you're right. Ned's execution is probably the climax because you've been the whole book with this character and his family, and then uh, yeah, there's that moment. I think back to the Tolkien analogy. You said like it's not like Aragorn would be beheaded at the end of Fellowship, but I'm pretty sure Martin has said that uh, he felt it was a bad decision of Tolkien to bring Gandalf back. You know, if he'd left Gandalf to die in Mines of uh-huh. Moria, he thought that it would have been, and other characters grew from that, he thought that would have been stronger. So um, I think his plan was always to have, like, the main sort of, not the main character necessarily, but, um, you know, someone who's, like, a uh-huh. massively influential character on the other characters uh, die rather than be sort of, like, f- fake dead, you know? Yeah, no, it's funny that I I've heard him say that, too. I always think it's a little bit, um, it's just a little bit rich that he that he critiques Tolkien in that way because nobody brings more characters back than Martin. <laughs> I mean, he brings back, he brings, like, Dan, Danny's a, almost a phoenix at the end of this. She climbs under the pyre, you know, she, she climbs off, she's, she's a phoenix, you've got... You know, you've got these other characters, you know, Lady Stoneheart, you've got... You know the Lord of Light business. Uh, assuming Jon Snow comes back, I feel like there's a lot of fake dead people in Martin's world. There is a lot of fake dead, and you know, you do. There's a lot of narrative telling you Davos dies later, but because it happens off screen, you never believe it, and then it turns out, yeah, it's sure. not true. Um, <laughs> sure. I, I feel sure. Stoneheart and you know Hurt and Darian, they're um, they're not the same person really like they're like sort of you know fire whites i think is a term uh-huh. people use um stoneheart is like represents the worst part of caitlin and all her revenge she's not yeah this that's is not right. caitlin and, stark and martin has talked about like if you come back from death that you should be weaker than before not stronger than before yeah um, um, so we'll see a change in john as well so it won't be the same thing and danny's thing i mean 
I guess it would be different if like someone stabbed Danny and she's bleeding and dying and then she comes back you know, with three dragons or something. That would be more of a cop out. I feel like, you know, her going to the pyre and the Phoenix thing, that doesn't feel like her dying and coming back. Well, I mean, metaphorically it is. Yeah. You know, you're, you're it, it's very much Phoenix imagery and she's climbing. What is she climbing onto? She's climbing onto her husband's funeral pyre. This is all her. She's walking into the jaws of death and emerging more powerful than she was before. Now, I don't think that she there, there's I think that there's some way that she knows that she's not going to die in this. But Jorah doesn't know, you know, from Jorah's perspective, she's she's got, she's about to kill herself. Yeah. Um, no, that's that's true. I still don't think it's because uh, it, it's immediate as well. It's not like um, if it's three books later, Danny walks out of like you know resurrection. No, or something. I, I get I get that part, but that I'm just saying like different. metaphorically, what is a phoenix? You know that that's yeah. that, it's very much a phoenix. In oh it. yeah, I've no oh, no objection to that. Um, I'm just more thinking of the his critique of Tolkien and bringing Gandalf back. <laughs> <laughs> Also, the hound, he does this with the hound, too. I think the hound is fake dead. I think the hound is fake dead, but I don't think the hound is anything like the show hound. I think the hound is now the gravedigger, and we will never see him again, and he's lame. Oh, um, interesting. I don't I, I don't believe Clegg and Bull. I think that was... <laughs> I, I know, in my view, I believe how, this is something... How dare that... you? How dare you, sir? <laughs> you, you've, you've thrown... <laughs> You thrown kick sand in the face of all of the Clegane Bowl faithful. Uh, I mean, there's a lot built up from it, but I just i I think it would be very disappointing if the Hound came back and then was like, I don't know, on the forces of good or whatever. I think. All right, uh, let, all right. Let me. Yeah. I mean, I'm gonna try to um, convince you here. All right, here. I'm gonna do my best job. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Cersei's uh, in jail, right? And. Uh, she's going to go on trial and she's going to, right now, now I'm in conjecture. Um, she's going to demand a trial by combat and she's going to want to use, um, you know, Sir John Strong. Robert Strong, yeah. Yeah, Robert Strong, right. Sir, Sir Robert Strong as her champion. Now, of course, she's going up against the Faith of the Seven, right? So the Seven is going, the Seven will need a, a, a champion as well and it's seeming seemingly maybe maybe so that the, the hound has got a little bit of religion and so maybe he now represents the faith of the seven and that's how you get the clee game ball yeah i've seen the theory i just don't believe it i think um the hound wasn't he almost lame from all his wounds and when <laughs> brian sees this right. giant right. man i don't think he's like He'll have to make some miraculous recovery. Yeah, but he's it's... but he's motivated by hate. Potter, he's motivated <laughs> by hate. Don't you see how strong that will make him? Uh, yeah, at least the dark I feel like he just told everyone that Santa Claus is not real. I, I... <laughs> are people that excited by Clegg and I don't, I don't condone this. I don't condone this at all. <laughs> I you wouldn't have thought. I, I mean, I just I, mean, I don't know. I wouldn't have thought people were that excited by Click and Bull. Like, it's, <laughs> I don't know if I'm that excited. I just feel like um, the Hound is such an interesting character, and I feel like I if I never see him again, if he ever, if he only ever is the rumor of a grave digger or whatever, that's a little disappointing, don't you think? 
I think it's a good um, narrative arc for the Hound. Okay. And we, you know, we only know he's a grave digger. Like on first reading, I did not know that was a Hound, right? I was like reading, I think uh-huh. it was um, the essays on the Tower of the Hand that alerted me to that. And I was like, mm. oh, that's a nice little Easter egg. That actually, if you read carefully enough, you see Aubrey and sees the Hound who is, has survived and is now like, you know, helping the scepter or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, that's actually, you know, for somebody who's so cynical and doesn't believe in anything, uh, that's quite a nice turnout for him. Um, that, yeah, that was my reading on it. I yeah. never expected to see the Hound again until it was a lot later I came across the idea of that game. So maybe I just made my peace with the Hound. <laughs> and, uh, maybe that's why well, I, I, I haven't heard about more, more power to you. I, do, I will point out, though, um, literarily... Here we have one brother who's a grave digger and another brother who has sort of cheated the grave. Mm. Don't don't we want to see? Don't we want to see justice? Don't we want to see the the man who's cheated the grave meet the grave digger? I, th- I think we do. I mean, deep down inside, yeah. I think we okay. do. That uh, that definitely grave analogy definitely has convinced me a little bit. I have to say, but um, <laughs> I still think how how is the hound going to know? Sir Robert Strong, who doesn't have a head underneath that helmet, or maybe he's got a head, but like seemingly, <laughs> uh, you know, the mountain's head is was sent to Dorne, so or skull anyway. Uh, how is he going to know that this is his brother? And he's like, is this the justice or the vengeance the Hound wants for all his mistreatment? Because there's only one man that can fill that set of armor. Mm, I don't know. This feels very much like uh, you know. Well, fan fiction to the Game of Thrones or to Song of Ice and Fire. Um, the sort of the gritty, brutal uh-huh. reality of Song of Ice and Fire, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I think I've here on Electric Buku, was... we don't often go in for fan theories, but when we do, we go all in. That's, that's, <laughs> that's my... All right. Anyway, let's talk more about Bran here. I do want to talk about this the introduction to magic a little bit more. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. I love that it's almost like You've got Asha sitting on one of his shoulders and Maester Lewin sitting on another one of his shoulders. And one of them saying, hey, magic, let's talk about what's going on up north. You want to hear about the children of the forest? They're still alive. Uh, You know, there's all kinds of things that you could learn about magic, Bran. Um, and then Lewin's like saying, mm, come on, dreams are dreams. Maybe you should be a maester. Let's look down south. Let's look down toward the citadel. Let's talk about the things that are happening in, you know, in the solid stuff that we can quantify. So you've got like the magic guide on one side and the scientist on the other side. 
And Bran has to decide, like, who should I be listening to here? Mm, what really struck me when reading the Bran chapters is how frequently Lewin is wrong. Yeah. And how out of touch the Citadel is. Like, they, he does mention magic a bit, but it's like he doesn't really believe it. Um, to him, the children are dead and gone, and there's no coming back. Um, any mention yeah, but of magic... he has he has a bit right. I mean, he says like when he's talking about like the history of the the children of the force, he doesn't disbelieve their existence. He says, "Look here, here are the obsidian, uh, you mm. know, tools that they used. Then they went up north. You know, th- that was sort of the end of his story. And then they went up north. You could pick up, you know, Asha's story could actually absolutely fit within Lewin's narrative." It's just that Lewin thinks anything north of the wall is suspicious anyway. Uh, Lewin doesn't believe the children still exist. He doesn't believe, right. even though he tells Bran the history of Green Series, he doesn't believe it himself, seemingly. He doesn't believe that uh, you can have shared dreams. Right. Any interaction with Asha, he's very uh, dismissive of this. She, you know, he's like... You've you've been given the freedom of Winterfell, and now you're filling this boy's head with nonsense. Um, so I think what's interesting to me is that in current affairs, and even with dragons as well, the Citadel, and well, Lewin, but I presume that represents Citadel, are totally out of touch and totally yeah. wrong. Yeah, Whereas yeah, when he yeah. talks about the history of like the history of the Starks, the history of you know the Kings of Winter, and the history of Children of Forest and the Andals, I believe this is right because there would be. If all this was not wrong and a lie, that would be a it would be a bit cheap from the author being like, ah, well, all this was nonsense. It's just just to show that the Citadel know nothing. Mm. So I believe history is accurate, but all of his current uh, views, I think, are quite out of touch. Absolutely, um, for sure. And I think that that it, I think he I think Lewin is really important for th- this particular kind of story because we were talking about how much how little magic there actually are, is in this world, right? Yeah. You do get the sense sometimes with Lewin that this is a culture that's right on the edge of modernity. Like they're mm. just, like they've got telescopes. They've got, you know, they, they he knows to call it not dragon glass, but obsidian. Yeah. Um, he, you know, he's, he's, he's looking to the comet and like, you know, measuring the celestial, these celestial bodies. He's so for he's so much looking forward to sort of an age of science, yeah. That he cannot see what's under his nose. Like he can't see that Bran is actually the most magical person in this whole story, and but he's so focused on the future that he doesn't see what's in front of him. I love that we have a skeptic yeah, who is advising one of our main characters in the story because it ends up making the the reveal of magic all that more satisfying. Yeah, and Lewin is clearly shaken by this as well. So yes. he suddenly is going to question things. Um, right. Yeah, I, I really like Lewin. I, in general, I really like his advice. Um, it just struck me that how wrong he actually is. Uh, about everything to do with the children and <laughs> sure, the White yeah, Walkers yeah. and everything, which I mean, from his standpoint, is fair enough. Um, but yeah, he's as an advisor and as a character of influence for Bran. It's uh, I think he's really important, and uh, I think even just this, we're getting this little history of Obsidian now, and we have some arrowheads. 
like, is this a Chekhov's gun? That was my media thought when I was reading this. I was like, oh, uh. Rickon's got four. Bran's got one, you know, or like, are we going to see Rickon's four again? Oh, he does drop them five seconds later. Yeah, he um, drops them. So maybe they stay on the floor of Lewin's uh, solar or whatever. But um, no, you're right. Like if Bran does, here's the other Chekhov's uh, bit in this chapter is that there's a little detail that John has told Bran that there's actually crypts below the crypts. Mm. And it's almost like, um, so it's like, where are you going to go hide if you need to hide? Uh, the other thing that we're told is that the crypts, you think of like the, the crypts of sort of like a great hall that's under the under the grounds of Winterfell, but then it extends out beyond the grounds of Winterfell. So it's almost like there's almost a, this little indication like if you needed to escape in a secret way, Maybe you go through the crypts, mm. and so I think that I think that he Martin is dropping just a couple clues for how Bran will escape once the, once once Winterfell is on fire. Okay, I actually didn't even think of that. I what struck me more is like how does John know there's other crypts? That's what I thought, right. <laughs> especially <laughs> when there's some. Um, there's like seemingly at least it's strongly implied that there's something in the crypts uh-huh. for John or that John needs to see. So I was more taken aback that it was like John told Bran this, and Bran, you know, the climber and explorer. Uh, right. So that was something that I was quite surprised by. And I think did we, did we not did we know that um, the crypts or do we we know the crypts can escape anyway or at least get in because isn't there some story with maybe it's a, not Mance Raider in particular, but it's one of the past uh, King Beyond the Wall who gets into Winterfell. Oh yeah, maybe so. It's very yeah. I, I don't remember where that that probably comes a lot later anyway though. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I do note that John is mentioned a couple times in this chapter. Yeah, and one of the things that what Bran is sees when he sees Edward in the cellar, it's something to do about John. And uh, my immediate thing is, well, what's the last thing that's happened, John? I was like, oh, the last thing that's happened, John is, uh, you know, he's been given long claw, so that's not that. Uh, <laughs> That's not, or that's nothing that's exciting. So you do have to question, okay, what does he want to tell people about John? I thought right. that was an interesting little hint. It does, and I'm going to read this passage here. The mention of dreams reminded him. I dreamed, it, I dreamed about the crow again last night, the one with the three eyes. He flew into my bedchamber and told me to come with him, so I did. We went down to the crypts father was there and we talked he was sad and why was that lewin peered through his tube it was something to do about john i think so that's that's it's very vague right Mm -hmm. but i do think that i mean the way that i'm reading it and you can tell me how you're reading it too but um the way i'm reading is that there's something to this there's something i don't know if it's ned's spirit or if bran is connected to Ned in some way, but um, I think that there's. I think that Ned knows that he has to tell somebody that John is a Targaryen and, and an heir to the throne, and this is the only way he can think to do it. I that's that's how I'm reading it. I don't think that's what Ned wants to tell John. I think he wants to tell him that Lyanna is his mother. I'd say that's more important oh, to, okay. for Ned to say to John than you're the secret 
Prince. Because he wants to keep the um, promise. He said, I would I will tell you who your mother is. Yeah, exactly. And um yeah, so my instinct initially when I read it was that Ned's worried that John is going to become an oathbreaker and leave to fight with Rob or something. That was my sort of you know first hunch, and that's what mm. I'm worried about. This mm. was my first ever reading. Um and I hadn't even considered the possibility that John was not Ned's son. Um, so, but in this read, then I was like, yeah, I sort of had something similar to you that, well, Ned took the secret to his grave and he was sort of sad about the fact that he promised John at the start of the book that next time we talk, I'll tell you about your mother, is what he said, or something like this. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. now he's uh, unable to fulfill that promise. So, yeah, that's it's very subtle. Um, but I, that, that's how I read it this time as well, sort of similar to Yeah, you. I think I like yours better than mine. I think I think there's there's no reason for Ned to reveal the secret that he's kept for so long, but I do think that he did make this promise to John. He does want to tell John who his mother is. I do think that the other information comes pretty quickly afterwards. <laughs> you know, I don't think that you tell John that his true mother is Liana and him say, "Well, then who am I? Who's my father?" You know, <laughs> I think. Oh yeah, no, it, it definitely does come quickly afterwards. But I think from Ned's point of view. That's what he'd want John to know more. He doesn't, yeah. doesn't care about sure. having a prince of Westeros. You know, he doesn't. Right. He doesn't. He wouldn't want John to be the king. You know. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Um, I did a little bit of research on um the history of telescopes after this because oh, you know, Lewin is looking through his tube, and um, I remember um this is really really stupid, but I do remember being a teenager and. Uh, watching Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves for the first time. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you, you may, <laughs> if you've seen it, you may I know recall, exactly where you're going, yeah. <laughs> you may recall that, um, that uh, Kevin Costner has himself a little telescope that he can, like, you know, spy. I don't know what he calls it, spyglass or something like that. That he can. Morgan of, Freeman has it, right? And Morgan Freeman is sort of next to him, and he's thinking, "What the hell are you doing?" And he looks through it, and he's sort of shocked by it. And I do remember thinking, "When did they? When did they start messing around with that kind of thing? Um, is this anachronistic?" And uh, of course, you know, as with most things, it's the Egyptians in the Mediterranean with Egyptian and Assyrians and a few other ancient cultures. They were playing around with polished crystal, and then later the uh, the Greeks were using glass balls that were filled with water, and they would use use those for you know same same kind of purpose. But anyway, yeah, it, it's you know Lewin Lewin could easily have like a you know some kind of brass tube with polished crystal lenses, lenses or whatever. Mm. Things that um, I care about that maybe no one else cares about. No, I think that's quite interesting too. I think um, it's not that related, but it's just it's interesting how when that information got to Europe, it didn't get to the East. So uh, in China, a lot of older scholars and scientists weren't able to work as long as in Europe because they didn't have glasses, so they didn't have uh, they weren't uh, able to correct their sure, vision. Sure, yeah, yeah, because um, the history of um, the glasses you on your face is tied to this whole lens business, yeah, right? Exactly, yeah. That's interesting. Now, um, just just to let you know, I just want to make sure I make clear that it was not Kevin Costner who invented 
the telescope. Just to correct you on that, though, it was actually Morgan Freeman's character has the telescope. Oh. And he, he, he gives it to Robin Hood and Kevin Costner is there and he puts the sword in front of it as if he's trying to, like, mm. use the telescope and combine it with the sword to extend his I've range. Ha- I've had this wrong in my mind for years. You <laughs> corrected my Prince of Thieves uh, trivia. We'll just have to watch it again and discuss that in the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it would make sense that because um, he's supposed to be Moorish, right? It would that would yeah. make sense that that that's how you know that's how the telescope comes to Europe or whatever. But um, yeah, oh uh, that yeah no that that actually uh, I like that better for sure. But uh, yeah, the history of the telescope, I, I thought that it was something I did briefly think about, but I didn't look up anything about it. It's interesting that uh, the Citadel have sort of like pocket ones that are using it for, I guess, mapping. Yeah, celestial movements and uh, right, track of and comet. and it's important just because the comet is mentioned, and it's so it's such a throwaway mention. It's just a, a mm. throwaway introduction to something that's going to be this crucially important thing in this next book. Um, you could almost, in fact, I I was going to say you could almost miss it. I did miss it. I did miss it until I read this chapter this time. And, oh, there's the comet. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, it was so throwaway. I just assumed that the comet had previously been mentioned mm-hmm. because it was so subtle. Um, so on our theme of magic, do you think the comet is connected to magic or do you think this is a big coincidence? Oh, good. I, I, I'm glad that you asked this question, but I'm going to ask you a question first. Okay, so so put a, put a bookmark there. Okay. What do you think is going on with Bran's dream? We both agree that his dream is connected to magic. Yeah. Do you think he's actually talking to the spirit of his father? Or is this dream, in a way, a projection of his own psyche? And um, he's learning information that he couldn't have known otherwise, which is magic. Mm. But as, as with like the fact that he's flying in a previous dream... He's not really flying. It's just that this is uh it, it represents in other words, this is not the shade of Ned Stark he's talking to, but it's sort of a a magical message that's being revealed to Bran. It's not an actual ghost. Okay, I actually did think it was the spirit of Edward Stark. Um because the Starks are so heavily connected to the crypts. Uh-huh. And we know that all the star kids are magical. So Rickon has the same dream we don't have a point of view for. It's right. strongly implied that Rob can also warg Grey Wind, even though we don't have a point of view, point of view character. So we know that all the star kids are magical, and we're pretty certain that uh, the Tullys are not. So where did they get this magic from? Why would one generation just have it and neither parent have it? So uh. I think this is the ghost of Ned Stark. He has this information that he didn't convey and somehow is tied to the crypts where his family are, where his roots are. And uh, his ghost does come back here. There's also later on when Bran is very much, much later on, probably Dance with Dragons, when Bran is in the Weirwood Net and he sees... Uh, Ned praying in front of the heart tree and he tries to interact with him and Ned kind of looks uh, that makes me think that Bran has some kind of connection with Ned that goes beyond just uh, normal sure yeah actions. interesting okay I like that it's very Shakespearean you know to actually have you know, the, 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 the ghost of your father visit right mm-hmm. okay so let's talk about the comment 
Oh, I, I should also say that uh, I had someone on, uh, I think it was Gregory Webster, and he thinks that the Tullys do have a bit of uh, green sight uh, okay. in their history. And he thinks that um, Sweet Robin has some kind of sort of latent ability or something mm, like that. I think that's, that is implied. I, I would agree with Sweet Robin. So, so yeah, maybe, okay, maybe I'm wrong to the Tullys don't have it, but... Um, I'm not too invested yeah. in that theory, but I just thought I'd mention it. I think, I think it's brilliant to have the comet in that second book. I think, in terms of the literary importance of the comet, it is absolutely tied to magic, mm. and it is sort of Martin doing that thing where he's in, he's more interested in the rumors of history than he is actually in the actual history. Um, so if you look at sort of a lot of ancient cultures, you know, a lot of gods, a lot of gods and, and supernatural are connected with celestial bodies. Mm. And, um, you know, you can see that in lots of mythology and you can also, you know, see that in the Bible from time to time. Uh, I, so I think that Martin's doing something like that where it's like, um, okay, well in my world, it really is connected to the supernatural. And so that's how I'm reading the comet. I think it's I think you could read it as okay, this is just people who believe in superstitious stuff and so they're all going to have a different interpretation of the scientific reality. Um I just don't think that Martin I think Martin Martin the science in the world of ice and fire is at least the rules of the physical world are governed by magical. They're moved by magic. The, the seasons are moved by magic. You know, the comet is moved by magic. I, I think that that's the world that Martin is is constructing. What do you think? Yeah, I'm quite conflicted on this. I mean, part of me kind of wants to believe that uh, the comet is somewhat representing a sort of resurgence of fire magic. It's like coinciding with the. Uh, the others coming back and the long winter that seems to be approaching and they're bringing all this, uh, you know, some kind of ice magic. Mm. Uh, and then the comet is coming back and now we've got Melisandre who can seemingly perform magic or and sees prophecy in her flames, even if she interprets it badly. Um, so there is some pharma and with the, like uh, Beric Dondarrion coming back, even though this was uh, not anything uh, Thoros would ever have expected, um, so fire magic is returning. So is the comet seems to be like to me it's some kind of representation of that in the way the snow is some kind of representation of uh, the White Walkers coming back. Um, that's one of my views. But then the other one is just that the magic is coming back because dragons are coming back. In which case yeah, the that's comet... the one I would go with. I would say if you look at if you look at this, uh, the the sort of the resurgence of magic, you can kind of like, like the like the necromancers or not the necromancers, but the pyromancers, mm. they're able to create wildfire far more successfully now that the dragons have returned, and mm. you can kind of go you know from place to place around the world, and it could be that Melisandre's magic is increased because of the return of dragons, but it's almost like. We know that dragons are magical creatures, and that they bring with they bring magic into the world in a way. And I think that that's I think that the the comet either foreshadows that, 
or uh, it's sort of an indication that, that 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 this particular part of the balance of ice and fire have returned to the world. Yeah, I see. I I, I think I in, I think in principle I do agree with you, but I, do, I sometimes question like, well, is the comet actually what caused the dragons to come back? You know the. the like why didn't dragons people tried to see like dragons before mm. like Summerhall for example we don't know exactly what happened there but there was mm-hmm. a lot of people killed and a lot of fire and no dragons hatched um, so is the comet mm. the reason that the dragons were able to hatch and just you know the comet's like some massive celestial mm-hmm. uh, dragon race <laughs> in a day <laughs> you know there's that possibility or it is just my kind of other view in general is just that it's a sort of tool to get people talking talking a bit about their belief in what the comet represents and uh how active it is in so many different arcs you know it's sort of a kind of commonality so it's just a sort of mm-hmm. like a literary yeah i think it could be both this though, commonality you know. is thread between everything so that's kind of what i yeah i suppose it could be both yeah so i don't really know i i think i generally don't believe the comet is related to the magic but uh i do sometimes go back and interesting. forth between. <laughs> interesting i will note that um if you look carefully at danny's last chapter she has this when she's grabbed when she touches her dragon eggs they they're they feel very warm to the touch but no one else feels it like so other people touch the, the eggs and they just feel like they've always mm. felt it's like so so Danny has, and it could be that she's has a fever dream or whatever. That's how you could re- read it as well. But um, you could read like Danny knows that these dragon, these eggs are ready to hatch, and she knows that long before there's actually dragons outside of the, the you know, outside of the shells. And this is about the same time that the comet is coming through. So. I'm not sure. This is a, not a chicken and egg thing, but a comet and egg. This is the old comet and egg problem, Padraig. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah. I can I could definitely buy that. Um, I do like your I, I, and I did also think about the um, you know how so much mythology is associated with comets. I did have that thought. I was like, is this just uh, something that like. At the very end of the book, Martin will jump like two hundred years in the future, and they'll be talking about the comet, and they'll like they'll represent some celestial huh. being for the future culture of Westeros. Um, and but actually, it was just a comet. <laughs> okay, something just occurred to me. So this theory is literally, you know, five seconds old. Um, you know how like the maesters or the common knowledge, the common idea about dragons is that they they're not they're not they don't survive in captivity. So if you if you put the dragons away and chain them up, mm-hmm. eventually over time they will um you know dwindle to the size of cats and then die away. You know. Yeah. What if it has nothing to do with the captivity? What if it has to do with these celestial celestial goings ons, and that the, the Targaryens lost their dragons because the comet was super far away. Now that the comet is back, now you can have a resurgence. Okay, so, so the comet is actually something like Halley's Comet that returns every few hundred years. Yeah. And uh, that brings back some other 
ramifications. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I do. Think I've never seen the... it anywhere. I will claim internet points if this turns no. out to be the case. <laughs> you better put it down writing fast and put it on put it on Reddit. Um, <laughs> I think actually though. I don't. I, I never. I don't believe the myth, or the. Well, I call it a myth. There, but I don't believe the idea that uh, dragons don't survive in captivity. I think the citadel were scared by dragons, so they were like kind of yeah. poisoning them, and then they probably projected the narrative that all. Oh, yeah, that's what I've always thought it. too. I've I've always thought that too. But I now I'm I'm, I'm becoming a little bit more convinced by my comet. Uh, I mean, everything in this story, everything in this story, everything that's scientific about this story, I think is tied to magic in some way. I think that, like, the only thing, the only way that Martin's ever explained that why the seasons are the, the way that they are in this in this story is that the seasons are magic. Yeah, but that's partly because he also didn't want, you know, for him, the seasons were just a device. He didn't want to have to think about, okay... Do I have a planet on a very large elliptical <laughs> orbit? <laughs> yeah, but, but in worlds, like, what is the comet? If the, let's say the comet it does return every two hundred years or something, or I don't know how often it would return, but what is that if not a sort of a micro or a macro marker for the cyclical nature of the seasons? I, I think that there's something about the way that this world marks time. Mm. that is that it has sort of a, a, a magical infusion to it but we don't know what's a returning comet do we for all we know the comet yeah, is going to hit king's <laughs> landing at the end of the next book yeah you're right um, we don't know that. I, I, there's a little conjecture you know, it could just be yeah it could just be like the sort of uh you know, mini nuclear bomb that he's just decided, okay, at some uh -huh. point I need to destroy an entire city. So I'm going to introduce this comet early on so that when I do this in book six or seven, people <laughs> won't think it came out of nowhere. <laughs> that's, that's very sad. That's very sad. Um, uh, so, all right. Okay, so on magic then, why didn't Summer want to enter the crypts what is going on there i missed that i missed it and now i want to i want to reread it tell me what happens so they're going into the crypts and summer mm -hmm. won't come and uh as far as i uh, my understanding was that they left summer behind but then when shaggy dog attacked bran calls summer and so appears mm. but he really did not want to go into the crypts hodor doesn't want to go into the crypts and summer does not want to go into the crypts oh I, yeah i know that hodor does not for sure so what what's going on there? And then the other thing that really surprised me, so I was thinking about this at the time when Summer wouldn't go into the trips. I was like, why, why doesn't he want to go in? Why doesn't Hoder want to go in? Uh, so I have an Ethereum why Hoder doesn't, not Summer. But then um, I also thought, why did Summer not know Shaggy Dog was in there? Isn't he a wolf? <laughs> you yeah, know, okay. he should, Summer and possibly Bran, but Summer I felt should have known that Shaggy Dog and Rickon were down there. Okay, I'm going to read this passage here. So, Summer stalked out in the echoing gloom and then stopped, lifted his head, and sniffed the chill, dead air. He bared his teeth and crept backward, eyes glowing golden in the light of the maester's torch. Even Asha, hard as old iron, seemed uncomfortable. So, yeah, um, 
Hmm. What are your tell tell me your theories on this? Okay. Well, I only had the theory when I was reading this this time now, but and from my knowledge from the TV show. So we know from the TV show vaguely how Hodor dies. You know, it's probably not going to be in that location. So my hunch was that uh, in a later book, it's Hodor holding the door of the crypts, or mm. he's somehow that's where he gets killed. And then in the show, also I think Summer is killed at the same time Hodor is killed. So maybe. Both Summer and Hodor die in the crypts, and that's why they uh, they don't want to go in. But uh, actually, I don't really believe that. I I don't. Yeah, I, that was just something that I thought of from my knowledge from the show. Um, it's interesting because I, you know, it it did occur to me because I I noticed that Hodor didn't want to go down. And I was thinking, does Hodor know somehow know or instinctually, or maybe he has a future memory or something that he dies underground. Well, it is a future memory, isn't it? Because that's why he says Hodor. That's right. This... Well, yeah, but I don't know how much of that is sort of like scrambled his brains or not, you know? Seemingly all of it, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I just think maybe it's not, maybe that's not where Hodor dies, but maybe it's sort of like, Similar. I know nothing good happens when I go into places like mm-hmm. this. Okay, yeah. So then the other thought I had was, well, maybe it's because. Eddard's ghosts seem to be there last night, and maybe Summer just isn't that fond of ghosts. Mm. And mm. that's what was bothering But, but like, Shaggy Dog is fine with them. I Shaggy Dog is fine with them, yeah. And also, that was what, when Shaggy Dog is down there, like, well, Summer should have known, should have got Shaggy Dog sent, and known Shaggy Dog is down there, but he still didn't want to go down. Uh-huh. Um, and usually, whenever the wolves don't want to do something, something terrible happens, right? So, yeah. When, yeah. Bran is climbing at the start. Summer, which is named this point, doesn't want him to go, and yeah, yeah. then he falls off. When uh, the when Rob is going into the twins, uh, Grey Wind will not go almost. Uh, so every time, and same way, actually, when Snow, when Ghost is going crazy in Dance with Dragons, and John locks him in the room, that's when they betray him. So every time the wolves don't want you to do something, mm-hmm. something bad is going to happen. Whereas here, actually, nothing really bad happens. Okay, Shaggy Dog and Summer fight a bit, but like, so so something terrible must happen in the crypts that's got Summer spooked and doesn't want Bran to go in. Yeah, or to go in himself. We don't know if Shaggy Dog maybe didn't want to go in initially, but then you know because the wolves mm-hmm. will obey, right? Yeah, no, we don't know that, but. Um, you know, maybe nothing bad happens Shaggy Dog down there, so Shaggy Dog doesn't care, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know. It's... I just was struck by that, and I wondered if you had an idea of it. And yeah, some, no, I don't know. Thing? I'm not sure. I mean, I guess, yeah. Are they afraid of ghosts? Is it something, you know, they sense something, someone undead, you know, some kind of unrested spirit. Um, I did also... note. Oh, go ahead. Just that they they refer when they first look at the statues, Nosha says something like a grim lot, and they refer to them as the kings of winter, mm. and that was a that struck me as like that's not a very like Lord of Winterfell is quite or King of Winterfell or King of the North is quite different to King of Winter, and that made me uh, you know revisit my idea of this big connection between the Starks and the White Walkers. Mm. Uh, you know, and this idea that like if their house whereas being winter is coming, not like as like better be prepared for winter, you know, get the grain ready. It's like winter is coming and that's when we will triumph. Right. Um huh, so huh. then when they're called Kings of Winter, that struck me. And then it's like, well, if there's some connection to the White Walkers there, maybe that's why summer 
who is named Summer, doesn't want to, you know, be involved with the Kings of Winter and, by extension, the others. That's interesting. I, I had not made that connection at all. That, that That's curious. I mean, you do get the sense that... Um, well, here's what I noted. I noted something interesting about the... Like, each of these statues of the Kings of Winter is sort of seated with a steel sword on their lap. Mm. And I know that... I forget where I learned this, but someone mentioned to me that the the gesture of having an unsheathed sword on one's lap is like a warning. It's like, you can come in here, but I'm ready. I'm, re- I'm ready to use the sword if I need to. This is made very clear in the Bran chapter uh, when Tyrion returns to Winterfell. And, Rob has uh, that, right? Rob has this unsheathed sword on his lap. Uh-huh. And then there's this myth. You know, this is sort of very ancient. Um, I think it's Celtic. I'm not sure. But it's, it's this idea that magic is held at bay by steel. Uh, sometimes it's iron. Mm. And it's it's this old idea. So it could be here. You have all of these, uh, the you know, the spirits of these kings, you know, at rest. They're sort of being guarded by the steel. Um, but then, of course, Ned does not have that yet. Um, so yeah. Ned's spirit is sort of in the wild, and maybe that's what uh, Summer senses. Yeah, and actually, some of the swords have uh, rusted to nothing, and we know in uh, when Bran and Rickon are hiding down there from Theon later, uh, when they take some of the swords, that's strongly discouraged because I think it explicitly says that the swords are binding their spirits to the crypt or something. Right. Like yeah, that. okay, yeah, yeah. There you go. That there you go. Make, that would make some kind of sense. And if there are crypts below the crypts that are even older, right? It's like, yeah. uh, it's like, of course, those 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 spirits are in the wilds. Maybe they, maybe those are the White Walkers. Maybe, yeah. And then, ironically, though, the deeper Winterfell goes, the warmer it gets because it's on some kind of you know <laughs> or something. So. <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah, of course. All right, I want to note some uh, introductions in this chapter. So the comets introduced. We talked about that. We hear about Simeon Star Eyes for the first time. Mm. We hear about Brandon the Shipwright, who sailed west and never came back. We hear about Cregan, a fabled swordsman. And um, probably hear about a few other sort of ancient figures that I I missed in this chapter. Because we have a lot of the stark history recounted in this chapter. Mm. Um. Notable differences between the show and the book. The biggest difference is that Lewin is deleted entirely, almost entirely, from this episode. You know, you basically watch Asha bring Bran down. They're they're alone. Um, Then Asha is not, uh, you know, attacked by Shaggy Dog, but she's sort of menaced by Shaggy Dog. And then on their way out of the crypts... Lewin has the the note and learns okay. that Ned has been executed. So just just the framing of the story. It's, it's telling the same story. It's just framed somewhat differently. Mm-hmm. All right, let me ask you this. I, I know that uh, we're over time now, but let me just run Since we're talking about Bran, 
what do you think about the theory that the three-eyed raven, the three-eyed crow, is actually playing the long game here? That we actually have this this sort of collective consciousness that's trying to get on the Iron Throne. And in the end, it's not Bran Stark who sits the Iron Throne. It's sort of Blood Raven getting back to King's Landing and finally sitting the Iron Throne. Um, I was meant to ask you about this Red Crow. So let me come back to this Red Crow stuff after. But I don't personally agree with that theory because Blood Raven has only been mentioned in passing. I remember when, again, when I finished, uh, when I read the, I think it's Master Lewin's fac and uh, a Tower of the Hand, this was like, you know, 10 years ago now. And this is the end of book three. And um, he mentions about Bloodraven and how his connections are. And I was like, I did not know anything about this Bloodraven character. I hadn't read uh, Duncan Egg at that point. Mm. So I had to read a, like a, an essay online to tell me about this Bloodraven character. And I think if one of the overarching plots of the entire book series is this Bloodraven character who's mentioned in passing in the first three books, really, getting on the throne, that would be massively dissatisfying. Maybe <laughs> it would be more like uh, appealing if it was like the children of the forest and it was like you know they've absorbed blood raven and bran and it's them getting their way back at the andals getting vision in the mm. south again mm. create you know the children's resurgence and winning the long game in the andals that would be a little bit more interesting but even still i feel that that would be a bit disappointing if that was the thing okay uh, that was a hook <laughs> like you know if, if it was like Wimmer royce getting that at the end who's introducing the first <laughs> chapter uh-huh. you're like oh well that's uh, interesting but if it's blood raven who really is mentioned in passing i feel that would not be very satisfying yeah. although some people would say well there is some connection there's got to be some connection between old nan and blood raven and old nan is mentioned in the first chapter uh and she's always the one who's telling the stories that no one's believing and, okay, and, and maybe but, maybe she's, you know, she's she's playing the long game with Blood Raven. If old Nan is sitting on the Iron Throne at the end, that would be massively <laughs> satisfying. I agree with that statement. <laughs> and I really hope, based on this conversation I hadn't thought of before, I really hope that old Nan sits on the Iron Throne at the end. That would be amazing. <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. FX is adapting James Clavell's best-selling novel, Shogun, into a 10-part miniseries this spring. 
Set in the shogunate period of Japan at the turn of the 15th century, Shogun depicts the rise of a feudal lord to Shogun, as seen through the eyes of a shipwrecked English sailor. It's loosely based on the real-life exploits of William Adams and Tokugawa Ieyasu. Shogun has already been successfully adapted back in 1980 with a widely acclaimed miniseries starring Richard Chamberlain, featuring intricate plots, political scheming, complex characters, and thrilling action. This time, husband and wife team Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo try to recapture the successes of the novel and early adaptations while increasing the levels of historical and cultural accuracy that are often perceived as flaws of this and similar works. Starring Hiroyuki Sanada from The Last Samurai, Mortal Kombat, and John Wick 4, with Cosmo Jarvis of Peaky Blinders, Raised by Wolves, etc., joining the truly massive cast required to bring this complex world to life. Join Aaron and I each week as we deep dive into each episode, uncovering the mysteries, the intrigue, and the glory of Shogun. Shogun premieres on FX Hulu Tuesday, February 27th at the two-part debut. Our podcast will release each Thursday thereafter. Get our Shogun coverage by searching for Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Over at Double Dragon this week, medievalist Kavita Mudon Finn joins us to talk a little bit about Double Dragon. Here is a short excerpt of our conversation. And Martin has specifically used um, Suetonius's Life of the Caesars um, as, a, as a point of comparison for some of the uh, sources that he's drawing on. And the oh, thing about Suetonius is, yes, technically he's a primary source, but he's also picking up all of the craziest gossip about all of the Caesars. I'm like, yes, let us write that Nero slept with his mother. Let us write that Nero murdered his mother. Let us write yeah. that Caligula had an affair with his horse. Like at all of it, maybe, maybe some of it happened. I mean, these Romans were fairly kooky, so maybe some of it happened, <laughs> but sure. I sincerely doubt that all of it happened. Well, and there's something to be gained to sort of, document the popular perceptions of someone like Nero, you know, yes. there, there's something, even though, even though we're definitely looking at propaganda, there's something to be gained by looking at what kind of a propaganda was serving oh, yeah. what purpose, right? Yeah. I mean, my, my doctoral thesis was about perceptions of women exercising power in the 15th and 16th centuries. And depending on which source you're reading, like, some of the stuff is just vile that they come up with. Yeah. <laughs> um, like some of it is just absolutely terrible. And it's all right there. <laughs> it's in the source material. Yeah. And what happens is sometimes in the 19th century, you'll have a historian who looks at one of these sources and goes, oh, that's an interesting story, pops it into their history. And it is recorded as fact for 75 years until uh, a feminist scholar shows up in uh, the 1970s and goes, Hey, wait a second. This came from X source. X source is notably hostile to this person. Yeah, this is right. clearly just reporting uh, rumors and propaganda. Yeah. But yeah. after it's been enshrined for such a long time, uh, it's really hard to get away from that. And mm. especially you get someone like Shakespeare coming up with like this. I mean, and I say this as someone who absolutely unquestionably loves Shakespeare's history plays. I adore them. They are fabulous. But what they are not is true. 